message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. John's first love letter to the church. At the time, John is the last remaining apostle, nearing 100 years old. He is the grandfather, the great-grandfather of the faith to those he would write to, and he would write as such. He would write with all of his heart. Today we jump back into 1 John, and we're going to continue our look. We've got three chapters done, two more to go. Today I'm going to give you a little bit of a rewind to show you where we've been. Just as a reminder, we've been off for a few weeks from John, so I, I want you to, I want you to, to kind of get back in before we move ahead, all right? And so as you're turning to 1 John, let me welcome all of you who are uh, maybe new to Cornerstone. We're glad you're here, and we pray that uh, you find that this be a place where you are welcome and you feel uh, at home. Uh, We pray that you feel not like an outsider, but that you've been uh, an invited guest into a a family uh, dinner as such. And thus the family table that we uh, gather around to, uh, to dine on the Lord's good word. And so... Uh, join us as we jump into 1 John. If you'll do us a favor before you leave, in your bulletin in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a, there's a portion of the bulletin that is our guest card. Fill that out and uh, drop it in the brown wooden box at the back of this room. That's our offering box, but we just ask that you make that card your offering to us today. So, welcome. Uh, everybody doing good? Of course so. Yeah? We've got some people traveling, enjoying the good weather this weekend. I know several folks went up into the mountains, and uh, we've got some folks out of town on business. But um, it's I don't know about you, but I was just... This morning, uh, a lot of mornings, um, as you know, the guy who typically is bringing the word, you know, I kind of feel a little bit of not anxiety, but just you know, it's it's uh, it's the day where I you know bring the word that I've been preparing throughout the week or been praying about, et cetera, and studying for, and and so there's a little bit of there's a little bit of you know pressure that is typically felt starting about Saturday afternoon. You know, I, I start to realize, okay, tomorrow. I got to bring a word, and you know, am I ready? And uh, it, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. And then Sunday morning, you know, it's getting the boys ready, it's getting breakfast, it's you know now taking the dog out, and I don't know why I did that. And um, so th- there's typically some stress. But I, I'll just I'll just tell you this morning, not because I was, not for any other reason. Like, but what I mean by that is not because I was super prepared, or not because anything was easy, or not because Corbin was spending the night with the grandparents, and not for any other reason other than just I think the Lord. Uh, the Lord gave me just a moment this morning just to say, you know, it's a good thing to be with God's people. Just just to be with the family. Uh, I, I love where this church is going as far as uniting, becoming a real family and depending on one another and caring for one another. And so I was just, I don't know about you, I was just looking forward to being here and, and seeing the rest of the family and um, being encouraged. And uh, whether, whether what happens now uh, is is great in human terms or not, I really uh, I really wasn't focused on. I typically am, but I really just more so just wanted to be with you and be with uh, be with you in the presence of the Lord. So I, I hope you I hope you have those Sundays. I hope we have an abundance of those Sundays. First John. R. A. Tory, Dr. R. A. Tory, pretty well respected theologian. He said this about the letter of First John. There is no book in the whole Bible that is more profitable for Christians to study 
and especially young Christians, than the first epistle of John. For this epistle was written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the specific purpose of meeting the needs of young Christians. That's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty bold statement, but I, I, I think there's some, there's some strong truth to it. Let me remind you where we've been. As we walked through the first three chapters, the first thing we did, you might remember, is that we, uh, we turned off all the lights, we closed the curtains, and uh, I had a little oil lamp that ran out about halfway. And uh, we just sat by, by lamp oil light as perhaps the, the first readers would have done. And, and we, we put ourselves in their position. We said, you know, they would have gotten the letter. They would have received the letter by messenger from this, this faithful old apostle. And they would have been excited and they would have been anxious. And they would have been hoping that there was something in there for them. They would have been hoping that there was something in there that they could cling to. They, they would have been hoping that there were answers to some of their issues, some of their problems. They would have been craving encouragement. And so they would have probably gathered, maybe, maybe even uh, in the cover of darkness, they, they, they would have gathered, however, together as a family, and they would have listened to the reading of the, this, this personal letter from John. The last remaining of the apostles. All the others had been sacrificed for the kingdom. But John has a word. And so the first thing we did was something kind of odd. Uh, you've probably never done it before, and you may never do it again. In a, in a church, but we read through together. You listened, I read the entire letter, just as the original readers might have done. And then the next week we moved into sort of an introduction, but we talked about the the reasons why John would write the letter, and they're not reasons why that any commentator or any pastor or any theologian had to gather up because John makes very clear what his reasons are. We're gonna we're gonna remind you of what those five reasons are that John gives in just a moment. But in that, in, that first, in that first session, we read it together. We looked at those reasons. And then we moved into the text itself, bit by bit, walking through, trying to understand why John would say some of the things he would say. In the greeting, you will find that there is no greeting. Unlike many of the other letters of the New Testament, there, there was no greeting here from John. It wasn't, hey, uh, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, I, John, write this to you, et cetera, et cetera. There was, no, there was no grand writing. He jumps in, you'll remember, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, da-da-da-da-da. John, at 100 maybe years old, has got no time for nonsense. No time for fluff, no time for extra peripheral items. He jumps straight to it. He minces no words. And so in that, in that opening session, we looked at, at maybe why and what was his focus as he jumped in. And his focus was, was Christ, the beauty of Christ, the word, the word that we have, the word of life that was from the beginning, the, the, the word that we've been telling you about that, that has not changed one bit. We looked at, essentially, the beauty of the Incarnation. You might remember that I gave you the illustration from the movie Twelve Years a Slave. In that movie, the slave owner is, is beating one of his slaves, and he views them not as human beings. He's, he's at the point where he views them horribly just as property. And one of the uh, other characters, one of the other slaves, uh, stops 
the slave master and he says, do you not understand that you ought to answer for what you do in heaven one day? He says, there is no sin in what I do. These are not, these are not people. They're my property. And essentially we talked about how in slavery, humanity was removed. And when humanity gets removed, you can then do anything you want because it's just stuff. It's just property. It's just materials to be used, abused, tossed out when you're done with them. And we talked about how in John's letter, the fact that Jesus was human, that he was in the flesh, that he dwelt among us is paramount. It is, it is the essential doctrine that holds everything else together. If he didn't come in the flesh, if he wasn't human, if you remove that, then you can do anything you want with Jesus. Namely, you don't have to listen to what he says because he's then not God in the flesh. John's going to stand up for, for this word of life that was from the beginning that we've been telling you about the whole time. So we talked about the beauty of the incarnation. Then we moved on. Uh, John talks about how he has light. And he brings whatever is near him into the light. Then we talked about how we need to confess our stuff as we move through chapter 1. That, that Christians, one of the best things we can do is own our own stuff and not hide our stuff, not hide our sinfulness. You might remember that we talked about sometimes the masks that we wear. And I challenged you that, that the fact that we become free in truth matters in terms of our own, our own confession. What we meant by that was it is helpful and it is freeing when we are willing to even confess one to another our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses, our own stumblings. That, that truth-telling, even about our own souls, brings freedom not only to our own souls, but it brings freedom to those around us who are encouraged by our willingness to be transparent, to be open about our own stuff. It brings freedom to, a, to an entire body because we realize we're not here just faking it. We're not, we're not gathered together just trying to be, to be uh, whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would call the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're not, we're not putting on a front. We're not putting on masks. I, I encourage you that when you, when you come to this place on a Sunday morning and someone asks you without even thinking, how you doing? How was your week? If it was bad, say it was bad. This isn't a place... To live a lie. The truth sets us free. And so John encouraged us to confess our stuff. We moved on in our fifth message. And we read the words of him challenging us very straight. Don't sin. Don't sin. He used words of comfort actually to accomplish this and not just words of conviction. God draws with cords of love. Romans 2, it is his goodness that leads us to repentance. So we talked about we talked about sinning in the life of the believer and what our motivation needs to be to stop sinning. Then we talked about how in our sixth message uh, that John will say some very harsh and direct things and we might have the temptation to say, man, I don't line up here, here, here. I'm not doing this, this, or this. Or I am doing this, this, and this sin. And so, therefore, maybe I'm in the category of not a Christian. I don't seem to fit in the description of John's Christian when he's very just straightforward. And we talked about how, how we need to read John's words clear as they are, but we need to understand that sometimes he is, he is talking about the facts and he's not necessarily using them as fear tactics. What we meant by that, you'll remember, is that sometimes when you read things in John's letter, it, it might seem to put some people on the outside looking in. 
John's intent was to show in, in clear terms who is in Christ and who's not. And as he marks through some of the identifying qualities of what a Christian should be, we as the readers are able to set ourselves in a category by our own evaluation of our own hearts and of our own lives and of our own obedience levels. We're able to say, look, we look more like this or we look more like this. So over here we can find confidence and encouragement or over here we might, we might need to be challenged. Or maybe we seem to bounce back and forth. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us? And so we, we talked about how John, in his letter, is going to state the facts. And he's not, always, he's not always listing out things for us to do and not do so that you and I read them as Christians and feel like we're getting this pep talk on, man, I need to be a better Christian. Although that's true, the intent of him listing these things out is not so that you feel bad about when you fall, but so that you can, you can start to identify who's who. Because in John's day, in, in the reader's day, the original reader's day, much like our day, there would be a mixed crowd that would gather together. There would be those who, who would say they're of Christ. There would be those who would say they were in Christ. But the truth is, they, they really weren't there. Not, not in Christ. They, they had tried to come alongside Christ. They may have tried to gain the benefits of being in the group that is following Christ. But they really weren't part of the family because they... They hadn't, they hadn't had God in them. And so John, in very clear words, tries to help us understand. But one of the temptations would be that we read some of these, some of these challenges and think, you know what, this is, this is um, faith by works once again. Because we always had the tendency to try and make our faith about the works. And so we talked about how these weren't fear tactics. They weren't, they weren't John's attempts to try and uh, scare us into doing the right things, to doing the right deeds and works. He was simply stating the facts. We moved on the next week to talk about love. John would say, I've got an old and a new commandment for you. And there was some confusion maybe in that wording, but we, we unpacked it a little bit. We talked about how love is that one quality that, that Jesus himself would give the world by which they can judge us in our authenticity. That the world has the, has the right to look at the church and say, you know what, if there's not love there in that individual or in that body, then, it's, uh, then I have permission to, to push that testimony aside. I remember at the end of that message saying to you that if, that if people uh, encounter you as a part of Cornerstone Church or they encounter our body collectively, if they say nothing else about our church other than those, those were at the very least, a, a loving group of believers, then I would be, as your pastor, satisfied. That's got to be a priority for us. That's got to be a priority for us. Then we saw that John would move into a pep talk. You know, that as we are marching through his letter, there would be the tendency for us to just start to struggle, have some inner turmoil. And so we, they, we move into this section where John just tries to tries to encourage, kind of like a good football coach or any, any sports coach would come in at halftime when maybe things aren't going your way and he has to come underneath your spirit, underneath your courage to undergird your heart and say, no, no, don't fall, don't shrink back. And here's why. He talks about not loving the world. 
And you'll remember that I gave you an index card. And I said, what is it to be in the world? And then what is it to be in the Spirit? And I said, on one side, describe what it looks like to live in the world. On the other side, describe what it looks like to live in the Spirit. And I gave you some time to do that. We took some time here in church to do that. And you, you marked it out. And you flipped it over and you marked out what it means to live in the Spirit. And then we just asked the simple question. Looking at your own card, where do you live most of the time? Where is most of the time in your life spent? Because John says, don't love the world. That's not where we reside. Not with our hearts. Not in a permanent way. Temporarily, we do. But we're, we're strangers in this land. On our way to eternity in His kingdom. We talked about after that that John uh, couldn't work for Apple. Remember that? The reason I said that is because John wasn't innovative enough. I mean, nothing comes in his letter that is new. And he actually says, I'm not going to tell you anything new. What I have for you is an old commandment. What I have for you is just reminders of stuff I've already said. In fact, the guys who are, who are pitching you the new stuff, those are the guys you actually need to be concerned about. That would be a red flag. I think John would say to us. So John, John couldn't work for, for a company like Apple because he, he doesn't have the new, the new way. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a new angle. He doesn't have a better way. In fact, he would just say, there is no better way than the way we've told you, namely that of Jesus Christ and His cross to the Father. And that's not going to change. And so these people that are coming in and they're upsetting you, maybe there's some people on the, on the, on the outskirts of the body of Christ and they're, and they're twisting some truth here or there. Those guys, they got it wrong. And maybe it sounds a little better, maybe it's a little flashier, but that's not the route to go, church. And so like a good father, he, he brings children that are easily distracted and he kind of ropes us back in. He says, no, here's a strong foundation to stand upon. And we talked about how hope is coming. We talked about how Christians aren't to sin. But we talked about how Christians do sin, and we, and we struggled through that, that, that seeming contradiction in John's own writing. Do Christians sin? And we just challenged ourselves and our own hearts with that question, and we tried to answer it honestly. The conclusion we came to, not by our own understanding, merely, I mean, that's part of it, because you understand you still do sin, and you know better than anyone, right, that Christians still do sin. But by John's own words, we understood, yeah, he leaves room for that. What do we do with that? So we spent a week talking about what do we what do we do with our own with our own imperfect flesh that keeps dragging us down, even though our spirit, our soul, has been born anew. Then we talked about uh, the superpower we need to have. Remember that? Anybody remember what the superpower was? It wasn't the first time that he alluded to something like this. You, you might connect it to something I've just said even earlier in review, but I gave you, uh, I gave you the term superpower and said that the, the, the superpower that John would choose for us is, in a word, love. For all the same reasons that I mentioned to you earlier. The power we have for evangelism, for fellowship, for discipleship, for growth individually, it's all built out of love. You understand that this whole thing that we do between us and God and, and us and us and us and the world, it's all relational. And the relationship always boils down to a challenge of love. So John challenged us there and I said at the end that that needed to be, if you could choose one superpower, that needed to be it. The last thing we looked at 
was the war within. There was, there was an opportunity as we, as we went through those first three chapters that our heart might begin to convict us and condemn us. And there, rightfully so, was probably a struggle, a battle going on in your own soul. And we asked the question, what do we do with that own conviction in our own hearts? And in John's writing, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right at the right time, in those, in those verses, in those chapters, right at the right time where I think that good apostle and the Holy Spirit knew that our, that our souls might be turning in on ourselves, he comes in with some encouragement. That's where, we, that's where we left off. When we jump back in, we're going to start in chapter 4 and move quickly into chapter 5. So let me encourage you before next time, when we start in chapter 4, why don't you read 4 and 5 um, so that you understand where we're going, where you understand how John is going to tie all of this that we've just rewound for you back together. Now the last thing I want to do for you today is I want to review those five reasons John gives in his own words for writing this letter. Again, I could give you some of my own assumptions as to why the Apostle John would write this letter. A good theologian could give you a list of the purposes for this letter. A good pastor teacher could come up with a list of of reasons why this letter was written. But by way of reminder, I'm going to give you the five reasons in his own words why John said he wrote this letter. And then next week, we'll be ready to jump back into chapter 4. Here they go. What I want you to do, what might be helpful for you is, if you have your Bible, these five verses would be good verses to just circle. Because they are, in his own words, why he is writing. The first is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The key word here, the repeated word here is fellowship. It's the transition, uh, or excuse me, the translation of the Greek word koinonia. You've heard this word before. It means to be made a partner with. It means joint participation. So when a person trusts Jesus as their Savior, their fellowship is on now two levels. Two levels. They have fellowship with one another via Christ. But not only that, they have fellowship with the Father now. You've gained access to the very throne room of the Father via Jesus. And so fellowship. Why are you writing this letter, John? That we might have fellowship. Chapter 1, verse 3. The second reason John wrote the letter is that we might have joy. Not only fellowship, but he's going to say that I want you to have joy. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And these things write we unto you. Why? That our joy may be full or complete. When you're with fellowship with other believers in the Lord, there is happiness that is not accessible anywhere else. You're at peace with God and have peace with God. You have peace from God. Psalm 1611 expresses this kind of joy. It says, Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence, is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Real joy can only be found in the Savior. John writes that we might have joy. 
The third reason he wrote, in his own words, that we do not sin. 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The goal of the believer is to keep himself or herself from sin. We are called to live a holy and pure life, according to 1 Peter. Holiness and happiness are not, uh, are, not, are not able to be separated. They are inseparable. Sin and misery are at the opposite end of that spectrum. Uh, years ago, I heard a preacher say it this way, Christians are not sinless, but Christians do sin less. So John writes that we do not sin. Holiness and happiness cannot be divorced. It's clear that John does not expect us to be perfectionists, however. This is clear from verses 8 and 10, and we'll, we'll leave that for you to read on your own. However, John makes it clear that what one pastor called loose living, like some of the Gnostics who were part of the first century, part of this church, well, they went to all sorts of excesses and, and, and all sorts of shame. That sort of living is not appropriate for the believers. John writes that we do not sin. And he pulls no punches on that. He minces no words. The fourth reason he says that he writes, that we might be victorious over deceivers or false teachers. That's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that... Anybody remember the word? It's translated here, deceive. It could also be translated, seduce you. The... Greek word is planao, which means to lead astray from the truth into error. It's kind of like, you know, I'm training my new little puppy now. I've got a four-month-old puppy. And so essentially what I do with treats is I attempt to deceive him into his kennel, right? Come this way, little guy. It's okay. It's good. You're going to get this tasty little morsel here. Go in there. Slam the door, right? I'm kind of deceiving him. Or you could say it. It's strange to say as I think about it. I'm seducing with, with this thing to distract them into what I want them to do. But that's essentially what these false teachers were doing, what these deceivers were doing. Those people who had kind of infiltrated the church, they weren't in Christ. They weren't in Christ. And they're taking the truth and they're doing with it what they wanted. They've taken Jesus and they've done with Him what they've wanted. Remember, they, they, they're able to remove His humanity and so He's not really God in the flesh. And so now I can, you know, I don't have the same responsibility to him that I would if he was actually God in the flesh. And so these guys, they become the deceivers. They become the seducers. Among the flock, leading sheep astray. So John writes that we might be victorious over these deceptions. In light of their efforts, these believers were to identify the deceivers. They were to shun relationship with these deceivers. They were to avoid them to the degree that they were being influenced away from the truth. So as we will see, the apostle points them out and shows who they are. He makes it clear in his letter. He gives ways to identify those who are deceiving the body. Fifth reason. The last reason in his own words that John gives for writing his letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that we might know that we are saved. 
What a good, what a good reason to read the letter. Because John gave it as a reason for writing the letter, you should be thankful. I mean, one of the, one of the most basic questions that Christians, especially young Christians, struggle with in their faith is, am I really who I think I am? Am I really who I think I am? The, the, the ultimate deceiver, the devil himself, will, will use every means necessary to help convince you that you're not actually who you think you are in Christ. It's interesting how he works, isn't it? That before we come to Christ, he will whisper to us that we have, we have no possible way of being accepted by Christ. That there's, we're so bad that Christ could never receive us, that He would never want any part of us, that the Father, that the Father could never love us. And so we should, we should stay away from Him. And then when we're in Christ, the only thing He can do is, is help convince us that, that there's no way we can be there in Christ. He, he's a deceiver on, on either end. And so John, as a good father, grandfather, does he says? Listen, I, I, children, I, I want you to have some confidence. I need you to have some some surety here. These things, chapter five, verse thirteen, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Those are the five reasons. We have dealt with them. If you just look at the verses there, we've dealt with the first four. The fifth still remains in large part. In chapters 4 and 5, he's going to be moving towards answering that challenge. How can our hearts know for sure? How can we have confidence? How can we have um, contentment in where we are in Christ? When, when there are those around us who are, who are calling our own faith into question, when our own hearts and souls sometimes rise up against us and call our own faith into question, where do we gain confidence? That's still, let, that's still left for John to answer. And we're going to move in that direction. As we close, let me give you, um, let me give you a quote from, uh, from a guy named John Piper in part of one of his messages in the first letter to John. And it speaks to... Um, probably, again, the foundational issue that John attempts to address in his writings, of actually all of his epistles. And it's namely that the, the person of Jesus Christ would be attacked for who he says he is. Is he really who he says he is? If he's not who he says he is, if he's not God in the flesh, and if he didn't, if he didn't come in the flesh and dwell among us, then, then we have removed his humanity, then we can do what we want. Because then we can do what we want with Jesus. We can make him as little or as much as we want. But if he is who he says he is, then that changes everything. That's essentially the issue. That's the underlying foundational issue for everything else that this church is dealing with as John writes to them. So as we close, listen to Piper's words. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. 
We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This one Jewish man. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. We don't like it. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. It is imperialism. It is despotism. It is usurpation. It is absolutism. Who does he think he is? Answer? He thinks he's God. And as such, he gets all that he deserves in those who are his children. So John writes, little children, let me help you. Next week, come back. We're going to jump in to the rest of 1 John. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we give thanks for your word. I thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to cut straight and cut to the quick. It is able to go right to our heart. It is able to, to pierce the darkness. Lord, th- those even small places in our own hearts and minds and souls where we, we have guarded dark places. Your word is able to pinpoint them like a, like a surgeon's scalpel. It's able to, to carve them out. Lord, we ask that in the coming weeks as we, as we return to First John that you would, as that good heavenly surgeon, that you would work in the, in the depths in the secret places of our heart. cut out any remaining pieces of sin, cancer of our fallen nature within us. Give our hearts an overwhelming joy that we are saved and we are secure and that we are your, we are your children, that you are our Father, that the gap, has been, the gap has been removed. We are on your lap, Father. We are accepted. We are redeemed. We are holy. We are covered by the blood of your Son. Give us all that assurance so that we can draw even closer to you and be more obedient, be more faithful, that our, that our sins would every day be fewer and fewer so that our lives might glorify you in greater ways, so that our light that comes through that, that Holy Spirit living in us might be brighter. So Lord, help us as we continue to walk through your word that is John's first epistle. Lord, draw us closer to your lap. Give us greater and greater confidence in who we are as your children. And Lord, by truth, make us strong soldiers able to stand up against those who would deceive us and against the one who would ultimately seek to lead us astray. Make us strong soldiers. We, we your little children, Lord, Make us strong in our faith, confident in our Savior, and great in our love towards our Father. We ask in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.